0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive Podcast. It's me, Chris Howard, from Lace Partners, joining you, as always, on this latest HR on the Offensive Pod. And it's it's another interesting one today because we've got uh, a little bit of a book review going on. But as always, I need a partner to join me in firing the questions to our esteemed guest today and my partner, who has been on many a pod with me. It's our uh, co-founder and managing director, Aaron Albury. Aaron, how are you?
1: I am very well, Chris. Very well. And the time of recording this we've just gone through another long weekend so i am arrested and raring to go starting my week this week on a wednesday which is fantastic Always i know start. i know it's lovely when that happens
0: and you're, you're that closer to the weekend not that i don't love my job and love spending my time with you, Aaron. But uh, weekends are precious. But let's not talk about weekends. Let's talk about the book that we're going to be discussing Mm. today, which is called Solving the Productivity Puzzle. And I'm going to bring the uh, author in because otherwise it's going to be really awkward if he sits here the whole time and we just talk about his book and don't ask him any questions (laughs) about it. It's Tim Ringo. Tim, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on, guys. No, it's a real great pleasure to have you on. So before we actually talk about the book though, we need to do the Ye Olde Credentials Check. Well, it's not really Credentials Check. It's who you are and where you come from and your background. So if you could just tell our lovely listeners who you are and your background, that would be amazing.
2: Sure. You might be able to tell by my my funny accent that I'm originally from Ohio, but I've been living in the UK for over 25 years now. But I come from a background in management consultancy. So I was a senior uh, executive in Accenture and then in IBM and then SAP Success Factors. And in all three of those jobs, I led large practices around implementing and getting value out of HR transformation. So I've done that for 30 years, which is where my gray hair comes from then in my spare time somehow i found time to write a couple of books the most recent one is solving the productivity puzzle so
1: i'm here to talk to you all about that today that was a lot of fun writing that book excellent excellent welcome tim we've known each other for a while back from our accenture days we have yes um, it's fantastic to finally get a chance to do a podcast with you which is brilliant thank you um Coming out of COVID, uh, as a lot of us all are, you know, we've hitting a point where it's a big focus on productivity right now, so it felt feels like a really timely time to put out a book around productivity, but what was, Tim, your reason for doing it? Where did the inspiration come from, I guess?
2: Well, I wish I could claim to be prescient enough to know that the pandemic was coming. I actually wrote the book and finished it, and it got sent to the publisher right before the pandemic. The timing is accidental. Really, what, what sort of got me to write the book was in 2017, I saw... A paper by the OECD, which basically had the title, GDP is going to go down for the next fifty years. So average annual GDP rate is going to be under pressure. And they said, you know, two thirds of the problem was people productivity. And I went through it, I thought, wow, this is really pessimistic. But they did have a couple of things right, which is, you know, companies are not investing enough in aligning people to new technology. So they're overwhelming them with technology. Two, they're not changing their processes to take advantage of digital technology. And three, they're not changing their organization structures to Map to digital technology. And so I thought, yeah, that's true. But what I've seen is that a lot of companies, you know, 2017, 2018, were already starting to address these things. So I thought it was way overly pessimistic to say 50 years from now, we're going to have less, you know, standard of living than we do today because yeah. of this issue. So I thought, right, I, I think I want to, you know, write a book that rep- refutes this and say, look, there are solutions out there. Things I saw in my 30 years of companies that are very high performing, very highly productive. They do certain things really well. And so the book is just a whole series of kind of lay the issues out, lay the solution out, and then here's companies that have done it. So it's very practical in that respect. So that's kind of what started the book off. And yeah, it was
0: really fun to research it and I really enjoyed it. So just a quick one on that then. What sort of feedback have you got from industry on it is there anything that people have specifically said actually this is one area that really resonates with some of the people that have read it so far
2: well i think the most um You know, complimentary feedback was the book won Business Book of the Year for Business Book Awards last year, which was a real shock to me, going up against some fantastic authors I thought I had no chance. So that was great feedback to get that. But really, people have said what you said. It's like, wow, this is really prescient. This is what we're focused on. When in actuality, we should have been focused on it before the pandemic. But I think that most people are saying it's easy to read, it's easy to understand, the models are easy to implement. People are taking things from the book and then using them to go fix the problem, which is exactly what I hoped for. And so, you know, most people are saying that, wow, you know, We didn't know that there was kind of a framework, and we can talk about the framework in a little while, but a framework to solve this. We didn't know companies were really good at, you know, certain companies are very good
1: at this. So that's mainly the feedback that it's, wow, this is really solvable. And as you said there, Tim, you you put the book out before the pandemic, and clearly the pandemic has really focused business mind on productivity and digitized that digital agenda. You talked about probably in some ways overwhelmed people further with digital, but also I think for a lot of the businesses been a catalyst for getting people to really engage. Before we jump in, as you say, and talk about the models, I'd love to understand if you reflect now on having written the book, are there elements of it that you think the pandemic has accelerated from your perspective from things that you saw?
2: Yeah, most everything, the trends that I write in there, I've got 10 trends that I mm. sort of doubt. It's really interesting to look at them post-pandemic and say, wow, you know, the pandemic has almost across all 10 accelerated them. And, you know, it's things like You know, digital transformation. It's things like health and well-being. It's things like changing performance management. It's all these sorts of things that people really got focused on during the pandemic and said, right, we're going to fix it. And you can probably tell me better. I think you guys are very busy at the moment fixing a lot of these types of problems, aren't you? So it's clearly hot on the agenda. So my timing
1: was very good, but I wish I could claim credit for that. It was just a coincidence. (laughs) We're going to talk about some of the models in a second, but I think one of the things you talk about in your book is um, about how some of this isn't rocket science. And I think organisations, as you say, should have been focusing on this for some time, um, pandemic or not. It'd be really interesting to get your perspective on on why do you think, given that it isn't some of it rocket science, it is things that are good practice, why do people... Struggle to implement it, what gets in the way?
2: Well, there's a couple of things. I think first, there's far too many projects inside companies that are technology led. And Mm -hmm. when that happens, the technology sucks up all the oxygen in the room. And things like change management, things like bringing people along, things like helping people learn to adapt to some new technology, or even telling them why you're implementing it, gets Mm -hmm. left by the wayside. So pre pandemic, we were in this kind of treadmill race, 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 race. And we just were forgetting that, you know, technology led change doesn't work. You have to change. Yourself and your organization and your culture first, and then use technology to enable it. And I think that's kind of the biggest lesson, really, that I think we're coming out of the pandemic and people are realizing, hey, our digital programs aren't working. It's like, well, because we made them all about the technology, not about the people.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. And you talk about this concept of PEIP, which um, you've talked about people engagement, innovation, and performance. Can you just expand on that for our listeners a little bit as to what you're talking about in reference to, to that, yeah. that particular acronym?
2: Yeah, sure. So I call it a quote unquote equation, which is essentially getting the right people, right place, right time, right skills, right motivation. And guess what? If you consistently do that, you can't do it 100 percent in an organization, but if you can do it consistently, it has a massive capability in terms of, one, engaging people, right, and engage people, then innovate. And guess what? People who are engaged and innovate perform. And so that's what PEIP comes from. And it's just something, and Aaron, you would have seen this for years as well. There's a lot of companies who are really good at this and it's kind of almost their secret sauce. But there's a vast majority of companies that don't know how to do this. They don't have a, a mindset of it. They don't have processes in place to do it. They don't have the technology to do it. But that's changing. And that's why I'm more optimist than the kind of OECD pessimist. I think people are starting to say we need right people, right place, you know, right skills, right time, right motivation. And that motivation point It's really important. It's really important to tap into people's intrinsic motivation, why they come to work for you. It's super powerful in engaging people and creating
1: performance. There's a lot said out there, isn't there, around sort of purposeful businesses? being able to crack this easier and again that comes to that sense of why someone is there and that real drive but also i think that clarity of role the clarity of accountability the whole sort of autonomy and mastery i think you talk about in the book uh, around this space for employees to really get a handle what are the things that our listeners should be thinking about in terms of how to put some of these in place my experience has been some of these are quite simple things but they need consistency Throughout an organisation to put in place, what's what's your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I mean, as most things, really starts with leadership understanding. Oh, it isn't the kind of understanding. Oh, people are our most important asset. It's like you know that that's just so much the cliche. It's it's really understanding how important having the as I said the PEIP mindset. Mm having the PEIP processes and then getting your leadership team to come along with that and then execute on it and then bring the technology in to, to sort of codify it. That's really the key. And I'm um, over and over again, we've seen this where programs fail because this hasn't been driven top down. Now not every leader needs to drive it. But I think for most instances where I've seen it be really successful, the CEO is totally on board with the concept of uh, putting people, you know, centric. And that's why you're hearing more about employee centric organizations, employee experience, those sorts of things, because CEOs are not suddenly saying, oh, you know, I'm going to be uh, really popular because I'm gonna do this. It's like, no, no, this is a good business decision by putting people at the center, it's the same as your customers. And that's really powerful. And that's why I think, again, the OECD have it wrong. They're not saying that there is a lot more understanding of how powerful purpose is and how powerful You know, deploying people to the right thing is and, you know, a lot of CEOs are now getting this and and leading on this change. And once you've got that at
1: the top, it kind of flows, you know, pretty quickly. It it definitely feels I think there's been a shift in the incoming C-suite in a lot of organizations that we work with that their Mm -hmm. CEOs are trained more to be people centric, I think, Mm -hmm. as they go through their careers or the MBAs or whatever the education is that they've been going through, there definitely is this more emphasis, as you say, that it's critical. And you can see the difference between those that have that mindset and those that don't just in how it flows through the organization. We're a great believer in, in our organization around sort of strength-based, you know, uh, organizations that are letting people play to their passions and being yeah. focused around where they have real strength. And I think that allows them to move to a level of what you describe as mastery around their skills, that gives them the confidence and it gives them the passion to innovate and move forward. What are some of the other things that can add to that in terms of mastery or automation purpose? What are the other elements that we should be thinking about? Yeah,
2: I think I think autonomy is emerging as being really important. And you and I learned this. Mm. I think we had a lot of, when you look back, we had a lot of autonomy autonomy. Oh, yeah. What we did, it was, it was remarkable. And it was part of the secret sauce of Accenture or Anderson Consulting as it was that a lot of people don't talk about, but I do when I go out and do my talks, I say, you know, Accenture is a master at creating autonomy within teams. And it just really is the kind of engine that runs things. And I think the pandemic has helped tremendously with this. This idea of presenteeism is dying yeah. a death quickly because managers have been forced to become more comfortable with their team not being within earshot of them or eyesight mm. of them. And that has really created a situation where people are now setting their own hours managers are having to focus more on outcomes versus outputs and inputs it gives somebody here's the job and they go and do it and it's about the outcome on this date not the inputs or outputs or how or when you do it and that just gives it just increases people and get people's engagement tremendously when i was writing the book of course you know i didn't know this kind of thing was going to come along where it was going to force this but to me it's one of the most important things coming out of the pandemic which is this i think permission for a bit more autonomy that's going to really drive productivity and performance but one of the things i found with the book immediately when i sat down. to write it was the word productivity is a problem and i had to sort of think about this and i so i went back to my textbooks went from business school and said looked at productivity and this is what it says it says various measures are the efficiency of production a productivity measure is expressed as the ratio of output to inputs used in a production process i.e unit of input. So, I mean, right there, we have a problem immediately, don't we? That's been the definition since the late 18th century. And we're in the 21st century now, and we don't work like that anymore. We're not producers of widgets. And that's why I had to kind of step back and create kind of a new definition of what productivity is, because the word just doesn't work. In fact, I didn't have productivity in the title of the book, but my um, publisher insisted on putting it in. I, I don't like the word because I don't think it's descriptive. But so I, I came up with a kind of different way to look at it, which said, you know, definition is getting stuff done that measurably improves the economics and human interest of organizations and society at large. So it's very three-dimensional. It's saying, you know, that work is more valuable than just inputs and outputs. It affects everything. It touches everything.
1: And therefore, we need to measure it in a kind of three-dimensional way. And you mentioned, Tim, earlier the concept of well-being in here as well as being one of the major factors. And I guess when you think about that ecosystem you were describing there and the multi-dimensional approach to productivity, it's why that kind of element starts to become so important, isn't it? And when you think about it, it's not just about volume in volume out yeah kind of equation around productivity you know that drives a certain behavior whereas if you start thinking about multiple dimension or way as you were describing Mm -hmm. you start thinking then about well-being of your employees as you say the the motivation the purpose the engagement side of it all plays a significant element in a modern productivity environment
2: yeah you know and it's really interesting when i was so the 10 trends that i build the book around Mm. one of them is health and well-being and initially it didn't make my list of top 10 Mm. and my wife was like that's just wrong. She kept putting things in my hand every (laughs) week, you know, read this, read this, read this. And I kept reading more and more. And I was at SAP at the time and SAP was starting to become really, really focused on people's, particularly their mental health and their financial health. And it just kind of dawned on me that not only is it in the top 10, it's probably in the top three. And I did a lot of research around it. And I went, I go pretty deep in in the book, realizing that it went from hardly making the cut to being really core to the book. People have to be mentally okay. They have to be financially okay. They have to be physically okay. So, you know, you know, you want to perhaps take look after yourself. And it's in the interest
1: of businesses to invest heavily in this because the return is tremendous on people's performance. Yeah, and engaging them and keeping them in the business and that sense of belonging. It's so important Is in pragmatic about this is you retain the knowledge. You don't lose the, all the investment you've made and additive over time. You talk about several trends in the book as you say, you said about 10, but and there's quite a few of the top five. There's quite a good range of things in here, Tim, in terms of the book, in terms of those trends, people living longer, participation, the whole gender, rebalancing yeah. in business, neurodiversity. Very mm-hmm. interesting. In fact, we did a podcast quite recently on neurodiversity. Yep. it's quite interesting. It's it's an interesting list, and not one I think that people traditionally coming in to talk about productivity would think through or talk about. Clearly, the well-being one came from input from your wife. What about the others? Where did they come from? You know, the
2: neurodiversity thing. I'm really passionate about it as well. And sort of came upon it really at SAP where SAP implemented a program to actively recruit people on the autistic spectrum. Not because of a charity sort of thing, but because they found that they make fantastic software engineers. They have certain capabilities that ordinary workers don't have. And so they actively were looking to bring them in. And my son is also on the uh, is is also neurodiverse and you know, I've spent a lot of time around his friends and in his schools that he went to, special needs schools and things and just saw what a fantastic resource these folks are. They think different differently, they behave maybe a bit differently, those sorts of things. But that difference is just key because a lot of people say the Wright brothers solved the problem of flight because they were probably on the autistic spectrum because they just refused to go with the current thinking back then was that the problem of lift was the issue. No, no, that's not it. It's actually the control of the plane once it has lift. And everybody said, oh, you're wrong, you know, and then they went and proved it wrong. And a lot of people say they were most certainly on the autistic spectrum. And they went from knowing nothing about flight to mastering it in two and a half years. I mean, it's just. Astonishing, And there's lots of yeah. stories like that today, and we need to find ways to bring, because they're the ones that help drive innovation, people who think differently.
0: Do you know one of the things that you talk about, which I thought was really interesting, is this symbiotic way in which engagement and innovation are together. I think that's a fantastic example you've just you given there about the Wright Brothers, because they were so engaged in the project that they were doing. That, yeah. that fueled their innovation. I think that's a really fascinating link you make there. And just expand on that if you can, as just any other further thoughts yeah. on that link between engagement and innovation.
2: Well, Wilbur and Orville actually were world famous before that. They invented the Wright Cycle, which was bought by everybody back in the eighteen you know, late 1800s. It was owned by royalty, and they, they were sort of well-known around the world for this bicycle. They just got tired of that and said, we want to do something completely different. They sold the company and said, we're going to learn how to fly, which is just crazy, right, <laughs> back then. And of course, I'm from Dayton, Ohio, which is where they built their plane and first te- tested it and those sorts of things. So that kind of brings it to the fore for me. But it's, it was just the fact that you know it, it took a different way of thinking to get something done, and you know, and I'm guilty of this, you know, probably hiring too many people who are like me, right? And I think what we have to do is get out of this sort of view and you have to look to hire people who don't look and act like you. And that's what I found in my career that was when I had the most success, when I had the most diverse people of all kinds, it's really powerful. And luckily I worked in organizations like
1: Accenture, IBM and others that valued this sort of thing. That combination, you need that diversity of thinking, that diversity of experience and backgrounds to really sort of drive innovation, but you need to fuel it with behaviors, shared behaviors, shared purpose, shared values that yeah. really generates the- that level of engagement. He's saying those two things, as Chris was saying, you, know, you highlight in your book to you all that innovation. One thing that I hear a lot of in organizations is we don't have the right environment to be innovative because failure is not accepted. What's your perspective, Tim, from that? How do organizations tackle that?
2: I don't touch on it hugely in the book, except more towards the end. But I do think organizations are getting more and more better. This is before the pandemic mm. and accepting failure as part of success. I think that was starting to permeate through. When I went to business school in the 80s, it was like anathema, right? Yeah. Failure is just not an option. But I think a lot of CEOs now understand the role of failure in, in success. And so, I think it's it's coming along but I do say at the end of the book you know all of these things aren't rocket science hopefully at the end I've convinced you that this is the right way forward well guess what it's a two-way street you as an employee can't sit around and wait for your employer to do these things you need to go take a risk and demand the change and try the change yourself and you may succeed you may fail initially but I kind of talk about how it needs to be kind of a two-way street here and that it's you can't just expect the organization to do everything that you need to take some risk as well and not be afraid to fail
0: I was actually interested so you've talked about like your 10 kind of points that you've mapped out. And we've talked about how you've written it before the pandemic. And you mentioned how well-being kind of shifted up in the list. How would that list look if you were only writing the book now? Is there any other bits that you've kind of thought, actually, I'd probably also add that in if I could now with the benefit that wonderful benefit of hindsight in this post-ish pandemic world that we're in great question I looked at at
2: in that light recently because I do workshops around and you know what I can't think of any of them I would change because or I would add to the list or delete because they just became by accident the sort of right things and I think that really what's happened is the pandemic hasn't really changed it; it's just accelerated these things as I said at the top of the show so I can't think of any that I would change at this point however I do think that we are on the cusp of a a tremendous ability for machines to augment humans rather than making humans redundant with machines. I think we're through that phase. I think we're now in a phase where your HR system isn't going to be called an HR system in five years. It's going to be something you talk to, something you interact with, and it's really going to be like your performance support. And we're on the verge of this because the technology is becoming smart enough, engaged enough, learned enough that I think we're on on the cusp of something really important. So if I were to think of maybe adding something, it would be that we're on the verge of, of something really exciting around machines augmenting people to make them better
0: yeah and we're getting more and more access as a result to more data to then make informed decisions particularly around things like engagement people productivity things like that we are coming towards the end of the podcast but i did want to just touch on one bit and obviously we've messaged beforehand and in the uh you talk a little bit around actually creating a formalized document process for your peip your people engagement innovation and performance so i was just reflecting on that this morning and thinking, well, if I'm a chief people officer, what does that physically mean to me? What's kind of the advice? Like I've just read the book. Yeah. What do I do now to get that formalized document in place? What should I be doing? It's really important because I think this is
2: something that isn't just HR. I think a lot of people in business generally, surprising, are not very good at articulating a value case. You can't get anything done in business, nor should you get anything done in business, I think, unless you've proven the value and been able to predict some of the outcomes and what you'll get for that. And my recommendation and my lesson to people is don't be afraid of numbers. They're, they're really not that complicated in business. And it's easy to go through and identify a program of change around solving the productivity puzzle and put it into buckets of value. My recommendation is then you go and work with finance on your paper because that's the language of the CEO. So don't be afraid of finance. Go to them and say, look, this is kind of my view of if we make these changes, this is what we're going to see. And they love putting numbers to those things, believe it or not. And they particularly, in my experience over many years, is that they love to get involved in people change programs. It's just different for them and they'll be a big help. So there's the paper itself. There's then the mindset around creating it. Then there's the rigor of the numbers and the talking the language of business to convince people with the budget to give it up and trust you to go and make that change.
0: Tim, it's been fascinating to get your insight. Um, for those people that aren't listening in, Tim's doing this from a boat. So <laughs> this is our first boat-based podcast, Aaron, I think that we've had. It so, is. Uh, thank you it very is. much for, for coming on. What we're going to do is we will also put a link to the book. So if you want to get access, if you want to uh, if you want to copy or buy a copy of the book, you can do uh, from all good stockists, but we'll put a specific link. You can buy the book there in the show notes. But once again, Tim, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. And Aaron, good to have you on, as always, as my partner in crime
1: loved it chris tim thank you so much yeah great questions guys really appreciate it it's
0: been fantastic having you on thank you very much for listening this has been hr on the offensive podcast and we will see you next time Bye bye